So we have arrived in some of those chapters of the book of Leviticus that causes a lot of people not to want to read the book of Leviticus. And I'm going to try to grab five chapters tonight. They all have to do with a similar theme. And I'm trying to get them without reading every word in the text. Uh, give us an overview of these five chapters, but really dealing with the clean and the unclean and the laws that God gave to the children of Israel, how they would conduct themselves in the promised land and to be an example before all the other nations of the world that a repetitive thing as found in Leviticus 11, verse 45, the Lord saying, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So the repetitive thing that we continue to see as we go through this is that you shall be holy because I am holy. And so God separating between the clean and the unclean, uh, dealing with animals, dealing with those who were leprous in illness, um, and a number of things as we go through it. Uh, people who are leprous, homes that had mold on them and what to do with that, kind of giving instructional things for the children of Israel. And one of the things that I kept thinking about going through this is how much the priest was involved in the clean and unclean. This is talking about ceremonial cleanness to allow people to come and worship at the tabernacle, then ultimately the temple. But the priests were very engaged in this process with the people. There were sacrifices that were offered. The priests offered the sacrifices for the people, sprinkling of blood um, to declare someone clean as we go through this. But the religious community very engaged, especially dealing with topics of illness as we go through. And it just caused me to think about the last couple of years and how our government here in the United States and many parts of the world wanted the religious leaders of our nation to be disengaged. You don't need church. Stay at home. Faith in God, though it may be important to you, the health of the country supersedes that. And we don't see that here. In fact, To get back to health was to bring the people into a proper place of worship with God once again. So the health of the nation was dependent upon the people's uh, cleanness and ability to worship God in their community and there at the tabernacle for them. And so discerning between clean and unclean, we're going to try to look at Leviticus Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. A lot of verses. Not going to read all those verses. I'll summarize uh, many, much of this. Chapter 12, very short chapter, so that's beneficial. But I'm doing it also because we get to 16 and 17. We deal with the Day of Atonement, and we deal with the sanctity of the blood and that of the sacrifice. And so we're shifting um, 
topics as we get into chapter 16. So I was hoping a very similar topic, chapters 11 through 15, dealing with that which is clean and that which is unclean. So the key verse for me in chapter 11, I've already given it to you. This is my key verse. You could pick another one. But Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So in chapter 11, we are given the dietary laws, things that Israel could or could not eat. These laws that God gave to Abraham's descendants to separate them from all the other nations of the world. God desired Israel to be holy, that they might reflect his holiness before the nations of the world. So what is kosher? Well, going to a Jewish website, I often go to this Jewish website. It's called My Jewish Learning. I figured if I want to learn about Jewish customs, I should go to the Jewish people to learn about these customs. So what is kosher? This is uh, an article that was titled, What Makes Food Kosher or Not? What is kosher? The word kosher is Hebrew for fit or appropriate. It describes food that was suitable for the Jews to eat. Only certain kinds of animals are considered inherently kosher. For land animals, any creature that has both that both chews the cud and has split hoofs is kosher. And so we read about that in verses 1 through 8. But looking at verses 1 through 3, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides a hoof, having cloven hoofs that choose chewing the cud that you may eat. And so again, from my Jewish learning of the mammals, oxen, sheep, goats, deer, gazelles, roebuck, wild goats, ibex, antelopes, mountain sheep. These are all generally considered of this kosher variety of animals that they can eat. Non-kosher animals that were not allowed are listed in verses 4 through 8. And the difference, it's the uh, animals that they may have divided hoofs, but they don't chew the cud, or they may chew the cud, but they don't have uh, divided hoofs. And so these were unclean animals that they were not to eat. The most famous of these animals, that of pigs, I'd heard several years ago that the Jews had figured out how to make pigs kosher. If you would uh, raise them on concrete, keep them out of the mud and the dirt, and uh, I guess keep the pen very clean for them, you could have kosher pig in Israel. But uh, they still can't get past the laws that God gave them because they do not chew the cud, even though they have divided hoofs. Camels and rabbits also fall into this category. My grandpa would have hated the rabbit side of those. He always kept traps out looking for some breakfast meat. And uh, it was pretty tasty, I have to say. So dividing between the clean and the unclean land animals, in verses 12 through 9, we have the clean and unclean water creatures. 
and 9 through 12, these are the these you may eat of all that are in the water, whatever is in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the sea or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the sea or in the river that do not have fins and scales, all that move on the water or anything living which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall not. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, but you shall regard their carcass as an abomination. Whatever in the water that does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. So repeated several times. What's kosher that lives in the water? It's got to have fins and it's got to have scales. If it has fins but doesn't have scales, not kosher. If it doesn't have uh, scales or fins but crawls around the water, lives in the water, not kosher for you. So the fish had to have both skins and fail, uh, skins and scales, both um, pretty pretty simple in that sense. A lot of the freshwater fish that we eat also there in the ocean as well. So that means some of the most popular things that people like to go out to fancy restaurants and eat like uh, shellfish, like lobster and shrimp and mussels or clams. Nope, not part of the kosher diet. Also, one of the things that I was raised on and know how to fish very well for catfish has fins, doesn't have scales. And all of these animals, and we'll see it with the birds as well, and even with the uh, mammals, they tend to be more of the garbage collectors of the earth. They eat the trash. They're uh, not putting necessarily clean food in them. As with the catfish is a bottom feeder, and the uh, lobster and the shrimp, they're all bottom feeders. And so they tend to be that cleaning system, but it's unclean for us. So of the clean and unclean birds, verses 13 through 19, instead of listing the clean birds, Moses just lists that which were deemed an abomination. So he didn't list out the clean, but just said, here's the birds that you can't eat. Once again, my Jewish learning said of this, for birds, only those birds approved by the Torah or others that later authorities have judged to be like them. A list excludes scavengers and the birds of prey. So the birds that the Jews traditionally consider kosher, chickens, turkey, ducks, geese, pigeons, and those that are forbidden, vultures, ostriches, hawks, and seagulls. And so here in our text, if we were reading from the text, it just lists out the unclean here without listing the clean, but the insects. I just read an article today about crickets and uh, how by 2030 we're going to be eating a lot more insects. Right now I don't eat any unless I accidentally swallow one on the motorcycle. Uh, I try to avoid the eating of insects, but just so you know, crickets are on the kosher list, so you're good on that one. 20 through 23, I'll read this one. It says, All the flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you, yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have 
jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, the grasshopper after its kind. Now, although the New King James lists out two different types of locusts, the cricket and the grasshopper, in the Hebrew language, these are all variations of the uh, word locust. And so they're all a type of locust. But we understand a grasshopper. We know how they're, they're jointed, that they can hop around. This is an approved thing. Crickets the same way. They tend to be a few of them crawling around right now in our church down in the basement. If you want to have a snack after church, <laughs> go look for some. I've caught them here lately. So in the Hebrews, these are all forms of locusts. But you'll notice whether that the animals were a land animal, bird, fish, that which is mostly carnivorous, those scavengers were deemed unclean since touching the dead would make a Jew ceremonially unclean. It stands to reason that eating animals that feed upon the dead or dead carcasses would also make them unclean. On the other hand, just know, and it, apparently by 2030, this is what they want us eating, less cows, more locusts, more cicadas, more grasshoppers, more crickets. We had VBS get a few years ago where we had um, eating bugs in the skit, and we actually bought some live stuff. And they weren't live. They were chocolate cover or whatever. But I don't think I tried them, even though we had them here. We just faked it. We got some gummy bears and ate them instead. 24 through 43, laws concerning unclean animals. So here the remainder of the chapter gives greater detail concerning laws about unclean animals and creatures and how the Jews were to cleanse themselves of their pots, their pans, even their ovens, if defiled by the carcass of an unclean animal or a creature or some kind of crawling insect. And so he goes through a lot of things as far as cleansing and if it was a clay pot, it would have to be broken. If it was a wooden vessel or maybe uh, an earthen vessel that was fired, it could be washed. But even the ovens, um, and, and I'd seen the ovens that is being spoken about tonight. We'll read it in a couple of different places. But these earthen ovens, I've seen them in Africa, and it would take a lot to break them down. But if defiled from the religious aspect of this to the point to where the oven itself would have to be broken down. That would be quite a labor to break down their ovens. But the idea of this whole thing we find in verses 44 through 47, where the Lord said, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and of the birds, of every living creature that moves in the water, of every creature that creeps on the earth, to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that, animal that may be eaten and the animal that may be not eaten. So today in the church, we're not under these dietary restrictions. Jesus taught 
That it's not about what we eat that makes us unclean, but really what comes out of our heart. It's about the condition of our heart that makes someone clean or unclean. Peter was given a vision of a great sheet that came down from heaven in Acts chapter 10. And Peter was told by the Lord, and in the vision he saw both clean and unclean animals in this great sheet. And Peter was told by the Lord to rise, kill, and eat. Peter argued with the Lord in his vision and said, Not so, Lord. I've never touched or ate anything unclean. And three times the Lord gave him this vision. And then the Gentiles showed up at the house where he was staying. And ultimately, he understood that God was teaching him that God shows no partiality between people, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the first Gentiles were saved because of the vision that Peter received from the Lord and his obedience to the vision to go with the men and to present the word of God to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles began to believe in Jesus in such a volume that the Jews began to get worried about it, the Jerusalem council determined of Acts chapter 15 that the Gentiles did not need to follow the dietary restrictions of the Jews. Paul wrote of this issue in Romans 14:14, 14, 14, saying, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So Paul uh, got past this barrier, and if he was living with the Gentiles, he conducted himself as the Gentiles. Um, I was thinking about a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine told me of a missionary, and I've mentioned this before at the church a few times throughout the years, of a missionary over in Europe in a very poor community where he ministered, going to visit a family, and his son really wanted to uh, go with his dad on this visit. And so his son went with the dad and the family, though they were poor, they wanted to feed them dinner. And they sat down at the meal and they brought the meat out. It had a little green tent to it. It didn't look that appealing. The father leaned over to his son and whispered, it's your job to get it down. It's God's job to keep it down. <laughs> you wanted to come. This is what you get to eat. And uh, when I was in South Africa, me and another missionary, we were out of the compound for a while uh, with one of the Africans. And I happened to ask what somebody was cooking. They were cooking goats inside this clay oven. Um, it was kind of a store, sorta. And we were going there to buy some uh, sodas and stuff for the crew. And... Uh, Man, we almost offended our guide because we would not eat the goat. But we were told, you eat food in the compound, you're good. You eat food outside this compound, it's kind of eat at your own risk. And uh, it was pretty touchy. I kind of, so don't ask. If you're a boy going with your dad, maybe you don't want to ask to go. You might have to eat some green meat. If you're out in... Uh, Sudan in Nimli and you happen to be out and see somebody grilling something just look and keep your mouth shut 
it's safer sometimes. But it's really not about the food or the food we eat or do not eat. It's God desiring us. And I think we see this as we go through this, these chapters. God desiring us to take serious the holiness of God and our conduct before the Lord. We must separate ourselves from the things that could defile or destroy our witness. It's one of the reasons Lily and I have limited the types of TV shows, the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, the content that we consumed, whether on uh, these devices that we have or uh, books that we read. We're careful about the language that we read. You know, when my grandson hit my finger and split it up the middle with a sledgehammer a few years ago, one of the common questions I get about that, and it still doesn't bend right. I can't bend that knuckle down. It's, it's broke. I mean, it's healed, but it's never going to be the same. One of the most common questions I get when I talk about the injury and Pastor John, what did you say? And uh, I didn't cuss. I did not cuss. So that's the thought of most people. No, sledgehammer, pretty bad. But I think it's the years of, you know, I prayed about that when I was in my 20s years ago that the Lord would clean language out of my heart. And it, I discovered that it didn't happen instantly, but over time and being washed by the water of God's word, I discovered usually through very painful experiences that he succeeded in cleaning that out. So we need to be careful about what we, the language you use, what we read, where we go. Always try to view things in the lenses of Scripture. This is called having a biblical worldview. And this is because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who calls us to holiness. God said in the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. But in the New Testament, Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, verse 16, because it is written, be holy because I am holy. We are to be set apart. And that's the idea of what Israel is learning here with the kosher diet. But our conduct as believers, we are to be set apart as examples to the world around us. So chapter 12, only eight verses. This one's a, a quick one. We can read every verse. Verse 7, a key verse for me. Then he said, Then he shall offer it before the Lord to make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. So this is dealing with the days of purification through childbirth childbearing and Jewish purification. We read about it in verses 1 through 5. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a son or a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as is the days of her customary impurity. We'll learn about that uh, in coming chapter. 
she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, and the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her customary impurity. She shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So under the Mosaic law, in the process of purification, every time a child was born in a family, if it was a boy or a girl, there was a process, the girls, and the process was for the mom, not for the child. This was all about the mom. Because of the blood that was flowed during childbirth, deemed ceremonially unclean, with a son, she was considered unclean for seven days. On the eighth day, the boy was circumcised. And then for 33 more days, a total of 40 days, if I have my math right in my head. The daughter, for two weeks, 14 days plus 66 days, equaling 80 days in long in all. So the, for the girl, twice as many days for the purification process. This might be uh, fall back to the original sin there in the garden where childbirth became part of the curse for the women in pain you shall uh, have children conceive in that sense but in Genesis 3:16, greatly I will multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you but also David reminding us in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me. Not that the process of his conception in his mother's womb was necessarily sin, but we all have that sin nature. So in that sense, yes. And then Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I don't know why uh, the guys have less days in the purification. It's for the woman. It's for the mom. But with the boy, 40 days. With the girl, 80 days total. But at the end of those days, verses 6 through 8, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, so whether a son or a daughter, she shall bring... To the priest, the lamb of the first year is a burnt offering. A young pigeon or a turtle dove is a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. She shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons one for a burnt offering, the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her. She shall be clean. So after the woman gave birth, she went through the purification process. She came. If they had enough wealth, she brought a lamb and either a bird, a turtle dove or a pigeon. If they didn't have enough wealth, it was two pigeons or two turtle doves, one as a sin offering, one as a burnt offering. And so even in this, God made provision for the poorest of the land. And the only place that we read about this ceremony being conducted was 
with the birth of Christ. In Luke 2, verses 22 through 24, now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord. As it is written in the law, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves and two young pigeons. So here we also learn that Mary and Joseph couldn't even afford the lamb and the bird, but it was two turtle doves or two young pigeons that they brought But what they brought was more precious than the animals that were sacrificed for Mary's behalf. And the sacrifice was for her. But through Mary's birth, she gave birth to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the true Lamb, Jesus Christ. And it's through his sacrifice that we are made clean. So that law of the purification of the blood Leviticus 17.11, hopefully we'll get to this next week. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. So blood was set apart, and there was both the proper clean and unclean aspect of this. So leprosy, Leviticus 13, 59 verses in this chapter not going to read all these verses talking about leprosy verse 45 though and 46 very key now the leopard upon whom the sore is his clothes shall be torn his head bare he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean unclean he shall be unclean all the days he has sores he shall be unclean he is unclean he shall dwell alone His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so I titled this Unclean, Unclean, Leviticus chapter 13. William Thompson was a missionary in the late 1800s who came to his first encounter with leprosy. And as he came to this area, he said, as I approached, it was Jerusalem, I was startled by the sudden crowd of beggars sans eyes sans nose sans hair sans everything they held up their handless arms unearthly sounds gurgled through their throats without pallets in a word i was horrified so leprosy better known today as hansen's disease is still proves to be a major threat throughout the world especially to those third world countries. When I first began learning about this, as a young man, leprosy didn't have a cure yet. Now if it's caught early enough in 1981, they developed a cure. But in some countries, especially India, they still use leper colonies to control the spread of this disease among the people. And that's pretty much what we learn here in Leviticus 13, the setting up. And it's divided into seven different scenarios as you go through Leviticus 13. I'm going to just pull up my Bible real quick and get a close look at it because I'm going blind these days. Uh, Verses 1 through 8 deals with the first scenario. 9 through 11, the second. 12 through um, 17, the third. 
18 through 23, the fourth, 24 through 28, the fifth, 29, let's see, down to 37, the sixth, 38, down through 46, the seventh, and very similar, different scenarios about how leprosy would be, what type of leprosy they had, the whole judgment of the leprosy by the priest. But I'll read one point for us in these. There's seven different ones. I'll read the first one, and we'll get a glimpse of this. So beginning in verse 1 down through verse 7 or 8, I believe. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab, a bright spot, it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest. The priest shall look at the sore on the skin of the body, and if the hair on the sore is turned white, or the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body is a leprous sore, then the priest shall look upon him and pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin, the hair is not turned white, and the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore for seven days. And the priest shall look at him on the seventh day, and if the sore appears to be as it was, the sore is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. Then the priest shall look at him on the seventh day, so day 14, and indeed, if the sword is not darkened, the sword is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab, and he shall wash in his clothes and be clean. But if the scab should spread all over the skin after he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. And the priest sees that the scab is indeed spread on the skin. Then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprous. And so that's one. It goes on to basically talking about different scenarios, different types of the skin, what it looks like in the examination by the priest there. So identifying those who are leprous and the priest responsible for making that call, whether someone was clean or unclean, uh, desiring to keep disease from spreading in their community. I found this so interesting since... We just lived through a pandemic, keeping disease from spreading through our community. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, the churches were pretty much out of that, deemed unnecessary, unimportant for the community at that time. But here we find that the priests are every very engaged in the reexamination of that, very engaged because uh, they were part of the process of their a leprosy and one being healed of being clean. So those who are pronounced unclean had to remain outside the community in permanent isolation or until the leprosy was healed. They would have to tear their clothes, leave, a guy would leave his head bare, cover his beard and cry, unclean, unclean. And also laws in verses 47 through 59 uh, stuff that gets on your garments, whether greenish or reddish, as they describe here, whether wool, linen, leather, whatever the material might be. Again, the priest was called to examine the material. We think just trash the clothes, buy some new clothes. Well, it was costly for them. Some people only had a garment and a cloak, and the cloak became their blanket at night. And that's why 
when the Jews borrowed money and they used their cloak as collateral, that cloak was returned to them at night that they could cover with it and they would have to go through that process. But they maybe didn't have a closet full of clothes like we do today. And so this was a big deal for them. And so there was the process, the examination, the isolation for seven days, the re-examination, the isolation for another seven days, the washing of the garments, the re-examination to pronounce it clean. Uh, If it was pronounced unclean after 14 days, it was to be destroyed by the fire. Leviticus 13, we have the first mention of leprosy in the Bible. Now, leprosy has become a picture of sin in the Bible because sin makes us unclean, separates us from God. Leprosy made them unclean, separated them from the community that they lived in. So leprosy brought separation, as does our sins. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated your, you from God. Your sins has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Leprosy brought separation. So does our sin. Leprosy brings people to the point. Remember the missionary who first saw the leprous people, sans eyes, sans noses, faces, lift up their hands, arms, and no hands. Brings them to the point of having no feeling And they thought originally um, that the leprosy caused like the fingers and the joints to just fall off. And then they discovered ultimately that they lost feeling in their digits and such that the rats would just come and they wouldn't even know they were being chewed on. And so they were really eaten off. But it brings you to that point of loss of feeling and touch in the extreme cases before their death, as does sin. 1 Timothy 4.2, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You keep indulging in sin, and it continually sears our conscience, our hearts, makes us dull. Leprosy is a living death, as is life without Jesus. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, He made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you all once walked according to the course of this world. And thankfully, Jesus is that cure. Without the blood of his covering, we would have to cry, unclean, unclean, when we stand before the holy and righteous God who creates us, who has created us. So chapter 14, we have the healing of the leper. I was going to count this earlier And I forgot to do it. We never read of any Jewish people being healed of leprosy, but we do read of Gentiles being healed of leprosy in the Old Testament and um, maybe in the New Testament. I, I was thinking primarily of the Old Testament examples there of Gentiles being healed of leprosy. In the New Testament, uh, you have the 10 lepers who were healed by Jesus, 10 at one time and The ten left and one came back. He was Samaritan, so he's half Jewish. And Jesus asked that man, where are the other nine? They all left. And he came back to give thanks to Jesus for his healing. But leprosy is incurable. 
But God left room for him to work. The healing of the unhealable. So there were rituals surrounding this. If one who is pronounced as a leper um, became clean again. So to be pronounced clean in verses 1 through 7, if healed of leprosy, a person had to be pronounced clean before returning to the community life. This pronouncement began by the priest going out of the camp to the leper. If the leper was healed, the priest took two living and clean birds, killed one of them in an earthen vessel over running water. He took cedar, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop, and the living bird dipped them in the blood, kind of like a brush, and then um, the blood of the sacrifice bird, and then sprinkled the once leprous person with that blood seven times. Finally, the priest pronounced the leper clean and released the living bird. So in a sense, that release of the living bird and the freedom and the life that had returned That was pronouncement of being clean. Now, to be presented clean, verses 8 through 20, those who had been pronounced clean, the person had to wash, shave all their hair, wash their clothes before returning to camp. Then after returning to camp, they remained outside their tent, their home, for seven days. They washed, were shaved again on the eighth day. And eight, by the way, is the number of new beginning in the Bible, it was a restoration offering was required consisting of two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb of the first year, three tenths of fine flour and one log of oil. A trespass offering was offered with the male lamb. Some of the blood along with the oil was placed on the person's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand and his right big toe. The same ritual that Moses did with Aaron and his four sons. Same ritual for the priest and their anointing, the sacrifice of the blood on their right ear and their right thumb, their right big toe. Same ritual applies here with one who is cleansed of leprosy. And remember I said with Aaron, the idea of the blood on the right ear is that we would hear the word of God, the blood on the right thumb that we do the work of God, the blood on the right big toe that we'd walk in the ways of God. So the remaining oil was poured over the person's head, which is reminiscent of the Holy Spirit coming on the lives of believers. I think of that, the anointing of oil. We do it so wrong. They brought a log of oil, a lot of oil. What was left, it was dumped on the person. When they were anointed with oil, everybody knew they were anointed with oil. It ran down their hair. Well, they didn't have hair. They shaved everything. Ran down their bald scalp and their bald face onto their clothes. But everyone knew it. Afterwards, a sin offering was offered and the ewe lamb to make atonement for the cleansed person. And then the other lamb was offered as a burnt offering. That burnt offering means total surrender or consecration to the Lord. And that was offered with a grain offering. It is through faith in Jesus and the work that he did upon the cross where his blood and water poured out that we are pronounced clean. So much like those two birds, the hyssop, uh, the mixture that was done, the sprinkling of the blood, 
the cedar wood, that we have Jesus Christ, both blood and water poured forth. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are pronounced clean. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I tried to say that too fast. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So in 21 through 32, we have the presentation of someone who is poor. They couldn't afford all the expensive animals. They were required to bring one male lamb as a trespass offering, two turtle doves or two young pigeons for the sin and burnt offering, a tenth of fine flour along with a log of oil. So it was reduced for them, but there was an offering. And, and I would have to say, if someone was healed of leprosy, I'm sure there would be those in the family. It's like, I got some animals. We can get this offering done for you because that would be a celebration. Remember, leprosy was incurable. And so God gave way for the healing of those who were normally would never be healed. And they had laws, verses 33 through 53, of leprous house, meaning mold or mildew, involved a seven-day quarantine, the attempted restoration of the area that has the mold or mildew, a demolition, a repair of it. If it comes back, the entire house would be destroyed, tear it all down. Uh, we've heard a lot about this in the last 20 years of black mold coming into homes and the danger of that. It's a very similar thing. Um, ours pretty much usually connected with the chemicals, the glues and stuff that might be used in construction Usually not a normal thing around here, but I think we've caused some of these things. But think about that. The whole house being destroyed, uh, that would be something indeed. In 54 through 57, we have a recap of the laws concerning leprosy, whether a person or a home, garments. But at the end of that, in verse 57, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. And so they were, again, even in their garments, their homes, the persons set aside. These rituals may seem odd to us, but there are similarities in the work of Christ. Like the priest who met the leper outside the camp, Jesus left heaven, heaven's glory, came to us as an earthen vessel in his body of flesh, being fully human and fully God. The blood and water that they used, that blood that was sprinkling upon the people, we have the blood and water running forth that flowed from Jesus' side, according to John 19, verses 34 and 35. The cedar wood, some believe that the cross was made of cedar wood. We can't say that it was or not. But it might be a hint to the type of wood that was used. The scarlet reminds us of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, according to Psalm 22:6. Hyssop represents faith. Uh, when they, at the day of Passover, they took hyssop, painted the blood on the uh, lintel and two doorposts of the house, so uh, like a brush, a brush of faith. And that becomes symbolic of our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And so the number seven is the number of completion. And we find seven repeated often in this 
chapter. The Bible tells us in John 8, 36, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Chapter 15. So in all your conduct, I titled this chapter, chapter 15, all your conduct. Verse 31, I chose as the key verse, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. So especially this chapter, um, we get into sexual purity here and discharge the menstrual cycle of women, um, other discharges that might happen, whether male or female, uh, sexual purity, as I mentioned. And it really caused me to think that we are not to take lightly our worship of God. Although the things that's really mentioned in Leviticus 15, not necessarily sinful, part of nature, uh, that of being male and female. Uh, there's still this sense of we're not to take light our worship. So 1 through 12 teaches if a man has a discharge, he was unclean. Anything that he would touch, sit on, lay on, spit on, shouldn't spit anyways would also be unclean. Although the individual who had the discharge, he remained unclean until the healing came. Those things or people that came in contact with them, they would wash and only remain unclean until evening. So and the person who had this discharge, they were unclean until they were healed. But anyone who came in contact, ministered to them, uh, were near them, they were only unclean until evening, but they had to wash. The only exception was these earthen vessels, and they were to be destroyed because of the porous material that could easily transfer disease. Something was going on. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used the word of unclean here, which is, it used the word translated it nine times as gonorrhea and so a sexually transmitted disease it could be but it doesn't say whatever the uncleanness was they were ceremonially unclean separated unable to worship god at the temple that was the idea of it once healed verses 13 through 15 they were to go to the process of ceremonially cleansing washing before returning to worship at the temple first had to wait a period of seven days then on the seventh day had to wash under running water had to take a shower on the eighth day he presented two turtle doves or two young pigeons at the tabernacle the priest would make atonement for him by the one bird as a sin offering and the other bird a burn offering and the burn offering spoke of that total consecration to the lord 16 through 18 the omission of semen a man's emission of semen, if a husband and wife were sexually intimate, they were to wash, considered unclean until evening. One thing that's noted, no offering was, this is just natural. The marriage bed, according to Hebrews 13.4, is honorable among all. The bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And I think God is just setting the standard of his people that we are to hold certain things. Uh, I deem this property we're on. It's been dedicated to the Lord. 
back in the 1960s by the Gospel Ranch who first planted a church on this property. They dedicated and uh, some of the old members I told Kevin and I once when they came for a re reunion, uh, when that day began, we didn't know they were going to have a reunion at the church, but they showed up with a bunch of people and said, can we come and look around? And they not only came in and looked around, just last year we had uh, a couple of ladies come in that were from the Gospel Ranch days, and the mom, very much older, was moving to Arizona, so it was her last chance to come and visit but uh, they did have a reunion. We had a little church service. We did testimony. Uh, it was a neat time. And for me, I was learning about the early days of this property, how every block was prayed over before it was laid. Um, so I deem this place as set apart unto God. And so I watch how I conduct myself when I'm on the premises of that which has been set apart for God. I, I try to watch how I conduct myself anywhere, but I hold things at a higher level, I believe. A church building should be such a place. People have lost that respect in our day and age today, and it's sad. So talking about the omission of semen, this is the one example I thought of. David, when he is running from King Saul, he left Jonathan with only the clothes on his back and a few young men. He came to Ahimelech at Nob, where the tabernacle was. Ahimelech was the high priest. David said, can you give us some bread and a sword? And Ahimelech said, this seems kind of suspicious. What are you guys doing? And David said, we're on a top secret mission from the king. He lied about that. But Ahimelech said... 1 Samuel 21, 4 and 5. There's no common bread on hand, only the holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, then David answered and said, Truly, women have been kept from us apart these three days since I came out. The vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common. This was the old showbread that they were talking about that was before the temple of God, but now had been replaced and so they were allowed to eat that bread. And so here's the connection of the vessels uh, being pure, holy, and they were able to eat that which was not rightly. Only the priests were allowed to eat, so it wasn't for them to eat. Jesus used the same example of David in Luke 6, 3 through 5, saying, Have you not read this when David, when he was hungry, those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, also gave some of that to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And then Jesus said, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. 19 through 24, Moses deals with the woman's menstrual cycle and considered ceremonially unclean for seven days. Anything she would come in contact with also deemed unclean, uh, very much like uh, the man who had a discharge. They were not to have sexual intercourse during this time. And then no sacrifices required. It's just, just a setting apart for those seven days. If a woman had an abnormal bleeding, so not part of the common menstrual cycle, Verses 25 through 30, 
She was considered unclean until the bleeding stopped. We read of the woman in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this. The woman had a bleeding for 12 years, was touched the hem of Jesus' garment, was made whole, and she was made clean by touching the hem of his garment. For that woman, Jesus' garment became that point of contact. She exercised her faith in reaching out to touch the hem of his garment, and she was made whole. Matthew Henry said of this woman reaching out and touching the hem of Jesus' garment, he will be found a sure refuge even to those who make him their last refuge. Jesus Christ, a sure refuge, even if he is our last refuge. So the recap of the law, a customary law of uncleanness, 31 through 33, the children of Israel were to separate themselves, not come into the temple or the tabernacle while unclean, whether their uncleanness was caused by sin or not. God was to be honored in how they conducted themselves as children of the Lord. They were to be holy as God was holy. They were to represent God before all the other nations of the world. We are to represent Christ Jesus. We are to conduct ourselves as children of Christ. 1 Peter 1.15, He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16 Be holy, for I am holy. Let's go ahead and stand together. So we thank you, Father, for these chapters. For many, a tough read in the book of Leviticus. But Lord, tonight, looking at a summary of these things, reading some of the passages, talking about the laws that Israel had, relating some of these things to the work of Christ in our own lives, One thing, Lord, that I, a few things that I take out of this chapters, these chapters, I should say, that of uh, setting ourselves apart in service to you, how we conduct ourselves in this world, how we represent ourselves, the words we use, the things we do. Lord, even our houses of worship and the respect and the adoration that we should have for these places. We know, Lord, that you are God of the whole world and that you are not contained into one place, one location. But some of these places and locations have been set apart for your glory. And we pray, Lord, that this is such a place where you will be glorified in our lives and that we would see you do great and awesome things. So, Lord, ultimately, all those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are unclean, unclean. But for those of us who have received you as our Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. To this we give you praise this night. In the name of Jesus, amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.